Hello, good afternoon, good evening, good morning. Whenever you're listening to this podcast, I hope it's a great day, you're having a great day and that you're safe and well. So, lockdown, yeah. Um, Yeah, so there's been a little bit of a delay, uh, a little bit of a pause, a little bit of a gap in terms of getting um, these episodes out to you, and that's mostly due to lockdown. So, whilst it's definitely true that the technology is there for us to carry on doing these interviews over Zoom or Teams or whatever platform we decide to go ahead with. My day job took over, so this podcast is very much an extracurricular activity um, for me. Uh, So I (laughs) unfortunately had to spend time sort of arranging my own lab work. And as I'm sure you can imagine, trying to arrange working in a lab from home is tricky. So in today's episode, we're talking to uh, Kat Memory, who is an intercalating... Uh, medical student at the University of Leicester working with Tom Wilkinson and for those of you that don't know um, medical students um, during their medical degree they can come out of program so usually in their third year I think it is um, they can stop doing their medical training and go and do um, a biochemistry degree, biology degree, and they call this intercalating. So Kat's an intercalating medical student, and she's taken time out of her medical training uh, to work in Tom Wilkinson's lab. And what she's really interested in is looking at the quality of life and exercise in transplanted patients. I think what's awesome about the work that these guys are doing in Leicester is that it's so easily translatable you know um we we use a phrase in the podcast and it's a phrase that's used in the lab all the time um and that's when we talk about um bench to bedside and basically this is the pathway that drugs or treatments or any improvements and things like that can take from the discovery in the lab so at the bench to actually benefiting a patient at the bedside And because in this lab uh, in Leicester with Tom and Kat, they're looking at uh, ways to help uh, renal transplant patients, how they can help them um, get more exercise and try and find out a little bit around what the barriers to them doing more exercise, what the barriers are. Really, really great talk. I think you can... I think you could definitely hear the passion just coming out of Tom and Kat's mouth for the the work that they do. Uh, And such important work, you know. So we talk in the podcast about... And giving a prescription for confidence, so the confidence to do exercise. Anyway, nothing me blathering on and telling you what they talk about. Why don't I just let you listen to what they talk about and I can see you on the other side. Okay, enjoy. So I'm Kat, a medical student here doing research. My name is Tom Wilkinson. Um, I'm Kat's supervisor um, and I'm a physiologist by background. Yeah. Would it be fair to say that the research that goes on here isn't necessarily typical when I was sort of reading about your group and seeing what you do what really struck me is that if in your more sort of typical um, research lab you had a good finding the sort of journey for for us to go from bench to bedside as they call it is at least 10 years maybe longer strikes me that for you guys it could like it could be really impactful quite soon I'd say we've got a very diverse um, range of people and researchers in our group Um, so we we do have the the bench side of it at the university um but here at the hospital we're kind of the more the more patient facing the more at the the front line if you like um i think we're quite lucky at the minute that we've gone through quite an extensive program of research 
to get to where we are and we are very much at the trying to develop interventions that are ready to be implemented soon and trying to also then trying to assess their implementation during clinical trials as well mm-hmm. um, and a lot of those interventions are at the minute very steered towards patient self self-management trying to get patients to to um, look after themselves trying to educate patients about their their condition trying to um, help them um, kind of live the best life that they can um, so the trials that we are doing one we're collecting at evidence which is what Kat's doing as part of her uh, her degree with us but also we are also um, looking at ways of implementing interventions in in the NHS Um, yeah do you want to talk a little bit about what your project is and what you're trying to do so I'm doing a master's here this year uh, as a year out between my third and fourth year of my medical degree Um, and my my main project is focusing mostly on transplant patients so it's mixed method this means half of what I'm doing is collecting a kind of questionnaire data so we go down to clinic we meet patients we talk to them about our research we send them home with a booklet with lots of <laughs> lots of questions <laughs> and then we wait for them to come back in so the, kind of the main half of that is we're looking at your quality of life so how are people living the sort of exercise they're doing what they eat we're trying to gather this kind of whole rounded picture of transplant patients but also, you know, my like I say, my project's transplant. We are looking at non-dialysis patients as well, so across the spectrum. So, yeah, that half, we're trying to get a bit of an idea of patients as a whole. Um, and then the second half, which I think, I have to say, Tom, you might not agree, it's my favourite part of my research, <laughs> um, the more qualitative side, but that just means I'm talking to patients about their experiences. Right. So it's weird for me being on the other side today, yeah, because normally yeah. it's me with the recorder on interviewing <laughs> patients about their experiences. But um, I'm lucky enough to speak to patients for quite a long time about their life, their lifestyle, their story, their disease, their transplant experience, who gave them their transplant, how's that Mm. impacted their lives Mm. and where they're at now in their kind of journey. Because kidney disease, particularly when you've had a transplant, is lifelong. Yeah, yeah. They've got this lifelong mission ahead of them. And really to support this questionnaire data we're saying okay so they exercise transplant patients might not exercise but why yeah we're trying to talk to patients about why they do this and what we as clinicians could offer them in the future is there a typical sort of response would you say i mean um are people do you see a lot of depression which is probably likely to reduce people's appetite for exercise do you see much of that, or is there sort of not really a typical response? I think there isn't a typical response. Mm. I definitely came in thinking you would find that. You you know, you think you can make an impression of patients and what they're going to be, but what I think has been the standout thing for me this year is every patient we speak to is different, and everybody has their own story and their own experiences, and you can't generalise. You know, in a sense, we're trying to, because we're trying to say who are these patients that can self-manage and who needs support, and that's what we're attempting to do but I think what the research shows at the end of the day is that's really hard to categorize patients yeah. like that because their stories are different yeah um yes some patients might have depression but others are so inspiring and positive and yeah. I've met some amazing people just out of transplant with these great stories of you know almost the opposite of depression but this strive for better yeah yeah like yeah I mean I went to the um transplant games um when was it like September or August time mm-hmm. It was just crazy. Like, do it. I mean, some of them were there sort of just to sort of, like it's an awesome community. Um, but I mean, some 
you saw some of them and you're like you you'd be dominating it so like a yeah, yeah. club event yeah. let alone here like so sort of yeah the appetite for, for some of those to go through that yeah it's always a bit of a paradox with this sort of research isn't it and that you're trying to you have to hope that there's a little bit of commonality so that you can get the numbers for your research but at the same time you're trying to ultimately you could put people on hours and hours of dialysis four you know three four times a week max them out on dialysis you might get them to live longer but their quality of life will be so diminished mm -hmm. yeah. does that speak to anything that you guys are trying to do here we've just finished a study um looking at high intensity interval training oh, in, right. in transplant patients which actually came from transplant patients and these kind of these very active sporty ones that are probably the ones that you see at the transplant games and they said we want to know whether this type of exercise is is safe for us to do and um so we, we did a trial in that and i and i it, um I'm not a qualitative researcher by background, but I did do the interviews for that study. And one of the questions that we asked them was, what does quality of life mean to you? And and nearly every single answer, it was almost like they'd all colluded together right, yeah. to give us the same answer. And it was it was it was remarkably consistent. And it was always about doing being able to do the things that I, I, I used to be able to do right. or what I want to do yeah so I, I don't think anything it was never i want to live longer or whatever it was yeah. it was about getting back to things that they used to enjoy and yeah. we were looking at it from a a kind of physical activity exercisey point of view but in some of those patients it obviously was was about more broader things in their general life right uh, you know playing with their grandkids or whatever yeah but the answer was always the same yeah remarkably the same yeah to the point where you're like this is gonna look really dodgy when yeah. i analyze this please someone <laughs> it's like a, it was a perfect answer to you know we're recording we're waiting for these amazing quotes that we can put into our papers and stuff and for them to keep coming out with yeah. that was great yeah. but yeah. it was quite unexpected that that's how they clearly that's what they all feel like yeah. it's just about getting back to stuff that they they want to yeah. do they want to enjoy yeah and, yeah and clearly the the transplant will give them that yeah to a certain extent and and we as a an exercise lifestyle physical activity promoting team we always think that by being active will also help them get back to it quicker better yeah. um and engage them with it a bit more i think yeah yeah i mean um i think there was a guy there's a guy who lives in Hull, he's 112, and he recently became the world's oldest man, and they were sort of talking to him <laughs> in the news. It was a bit of a weird one, because the guy in Japan had died, and they were like, oh, mate, how do you feel about being the oldest man? He's like, well, not great, it just means that someone else has died. Yeah. Um, but they were sort of saying to him, oh, it must be really cool living longer and living longer, and he said, well, yeah, you know, it's good that you get this extra time, but it's not like extra time in your 20s or 30s. He said, it's extra time now, where I'm very limited in what yeah. I can do, and that's sort of, sort of the same sort of thing that... You know, would we all necessarily want lots and lots of time if we weren't healthy enough to sort of do the things that we want to do? I, I think, I think with that guy as well, his they asked him, um, "What's the secret?" Right, to, and he said, "Don't die." <laughs> so I thought it was quite a he's, good. He's not wrong. No, <laughs> um, but I mean, we we um, we talked a lot of um, when we've been developing kind of interventions about. Um, trying to engage people with self-management and trying to get people to look after them and take care of themselves. We talked to patients a lot about risk and about and about that kind of thing. Well, 
if if you do this now, if you do X, Y, Z now, be active, eat healthy, whatever, you're X amount likely to do this or you're less likely to have a heart attack in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, years time. But actually, when you speak to patients, that doesn't really mean anything to them. And actually, what they want to do is stuff they want to improve stuff now yeah they want to know well if i do this what what is going to happen to me tomorrow next week in the month what's the immediate kind of gains they don't really you know from the people we speak to they don't really think yeah that long term so when we when we're putting our educational stuff together putting statements like well if you're do you increase your physical activity by 30 minutes you're 10 percent less likely to have a heart attack or whatever it may be that doesn't mean anything. Well, it doesn't them. chime, does it? You no. Sort of, you know, it's like when stats will come out and I'll say, well, this doubles your risk of whatever, and it's doubling from half a percent in 10 years to 1%. I mean, yeah. how, do you even, how do you get a sense for what that even is? Yeah. I think that's what's really nice about your work is that if you guys are talking to patients, you can talk about outcomes that you can change for them very, very soon. Mm-hmm. So have you had a sense of that when you've been interviewing the patients? That Does it feel much more immediate for them, do you think? Yeah, I definitely get the sense that people want, they want to do something now and they want to feel better now. And I agree with what Tom's just said in terms of, you know, you tell them this long term risk, but really it's, well, I feel unwell, so how can I get better? What do I do at this point in time? And a lot of self-management, I think this has definitely stood out for me. We talk about self-management as eating well for long-term health, but it's also what do you do when you get unwell? What will make you feel better straight away? You know, how do you deal with not taking your medications? What have you forgotten? What do you do? And it's actually the immediate task to look after their health immediately now that can be such a standout thing for them. So what was the outcome with HIT? So I've been doing some HIT classes, Mm -hmm. and I think they're awesome in the sense that you can have people of all different abilities in the room, but everyone's just going till till they nearly make themselves sick. So it's a great leveler in that sense. Mm -hmm. So I guess no matter what your sort of standard or abilities or even, you know, disabilities you can still push yourself to as much as you can handle and feel like you're taking part. So what was your sort of outcome uh, on that? I mean, they're, st- they're still analysing the data, so right. I'm not too sure whether I'm like, it's like okay. secret, secret. But I mean, the study was a, actually a feasibility study um, right. in terms of we weren't really necessarily looking at whether it worked, as in was it effective? Did it increase you know, their aerobic capacity? It was actually, do they do it? Right, and okay. Is it a safe? And in, in that regard... It was, and you could, you could push people very, very, very hard um, for an extended period of time. Um, and the the hit training that we were doing was very, very intense. Right. Um, and, and it kind of showed to patients, you know, when you spoke to them after, they couldn't believe that they could actually do this. First of all, wow. um, that they could actually push themselves to that that limit, essentially. Um, because you know they have this this thing inside yeah. them that they can feel to yeah. a certain extent, and they're like, "Well, am I going to damage it, mm. etc." But actually, they do. They did this trial. It was eight weeks, three times a week, and yeah, they're pushing themselves to a hundred percent of their maximum for a very short amount of time. Mm. But um, you know, nearly all of them were, were amazed by how far they could they could go. Um, I mean, there are lots. Of, there are a couple of this, these high-intensity trials coming out now uh, in transplant patients, in dialysis patients, even in di- um, yeah, in dialysis patients as well. So it seems to be quite a, an increasing trend, yeah. I think. And the, the thing is, it overcomes. So I, d- I don't know if you want to talk about some of the sort of challenges or excuses that people feel are in the way. 
Yes. So I've actually had some interesting conversations with patients about getting back to exercise after transplant. So in fact, a lot of the patients that I speak to are very soon out of transplant six weeks ago, 10 days ago, and sometimes you know, very fresh face, new to the world and this fear of, you know, can I do martial arts? Mm. What sort of exercise can I do? You're, it's that balance of worrying about hurting this transplant you've got inside you this yeah. I mean it's quite often I'm trying to think somebody referred to it as being like having a baby the other day right a new baby that you don't want to do anything yeah. to hurt you need to protect it you need to care for it but it's understanding that balance between looking after your body and not hurting your graft but also making sure you're pushing your body enough mm. to get back out there to get active mm-hmm. because I, I tell me if I'm wrong but a lot of the research says the sooner you get back out there, you get active, you're doing all of these tasks to look after yourself, your outcomes long-term are better. Right. Yeah. But I can I can totally get on board with how that might feel counterintuitive that you're like, oh, steady, <laughs> yeah. you know. I mean, we, we um, are in the process of writing the first ever uh, physical activity guidelines for kidney patients now. Um, and it, I'm involved in the transplant guidelines and the recommendations but that is the the thing there is just is no research about things like martial arts and it's just yeah. generally advised that you shouldn't really go back to things like that but right. you do see hear these amazing success stories of professional boxers rugby wow. players going back to elite sport after they've had a transplant yeah now they're clearly specialist cases but there's just not the research out there that you could you don't want to definitively say you're going to do this, this and this, but certainly we know that patients can push it very hard without it damaging it. And if anything, the research suggests that actually by getting involved in exercise post-transplantation, you're actually going to help that that graft, help the EGFR, help lower the creatinine, as well as, you know, improving aerobic capacity or cholesterol level, all those kind of things that come with it. So ultimately, you're almost, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it starts to feel like you're giving a prescription for confidence almost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, you know, the the patient, it might it might become part of their sort of routine outpatient thing of like, oh, cool, right, you know, here's your list of exercises you can do. Really empower them and say, guys, there's people boxing and playing professional rugby. You don't have to do that, but yeah. you totally yeah. could. So, yeah, you're running, you're doing park run and, you know, exercising during the week or whatever totally fine we've um, just finished a study last year that we published we looked at physical activity levels across uh, 6,000 patients across the UK including 2,500 transplant patients the biggest or one of the biggest predictors of physical activity levels was self-efficacy so essentially confidence to do exercise yeah yeah um so the the more confident you were in doing exercise being active the more likely you were to be active Mm. but there is a it's then how do we improve their self-efficacy, their confidence. And in transplant patients, that's obviously going to be quite difficult if they're a bit um, a bit weary about returning to exercise yeah. or returning to physical activity. Yeah. But we know that that's so important for getting them to sustain that those physical activity levels, yeah. definitely. Yeah. I mean, I don't, know, I don't know how okay it is to talk about a sort of excuse mindset. So I know myself, <laughs> you know, excuses might range from I don't have the time, I'm really busy today, I'm tired today, um, you know, and then you have to sort of combat them in your own mind of like, well, it'll only take half an hour, you know, or like in my head, I'll be like, well, don't do the full, don't do, don't do a 10k, do a 5k, you know, mm-hmm. and I, so do you think, do you, do you find that, I don't know, do people have a sort of set of excuses, yeah, is excuses, you- a, it's not a very nice word, is it? <laughs> it 
the, I, it rung a bell what you just said there to a conversation I had with a patient recently about whether or not they did exercise. Um, and he said very much, no, I, I don't. And you start a lot of the whys. We're always asking, so why? So why don't you exercise? Well, I don't have the motivation. So why don't you have the motivation? Well, I just never have had the motivation. Well, what do you think would help you get motivated? And I think he just looked at me and <laughs> I just don't want to exercise. It just doesn't interest me. It's just not something I want to do as part of my life. I mean, that is a fair answer. Mm. I'm not that honest with myself. <laughs> it's always a good reason like, oh, no, you know, um, it's raining or, you know, whatever that reason might be mm. on that day. I don't think I'd ever be as honest to be like, just can't be asked, mate. It's important to find out who those patients are. So hopefully what our research is doing is finding, you know, those patients that want to exercise and want to learn and want to take these ideas on board. And then maybe those that don't, there's other things. It's not, we're not saying here, you know, exercise is the answer to mm. having the better outcomes. Self-management, we talk about it. It's more than just exercising. It's your diet, it's your medications. Yeah. It's such a huge, vast it's every action that you do in between your consultations with your doctor. Hmm. So everything you do on a day-to-day -day basis that doesn't involve your doctor, that's your self-management. Yeah. And it's making them aware that there's so much that they can do to help themselves. You know, just eating a balanced diet, tracking their diet, looking at their bloods, checking what's going on when, you know, a lot of our patients here have access to something called patient view. Yeah. They love it. Yeah. I honestly, every conversation I've had, every patient has said, I have patient view. It's an app where they can view their blood results as and when they come out, see what's going on. They can monitor their EGFR and all their bloods. If they've got any worries, they can instantly contact the doctor and say, look, this has happened. What does it mean? And, it's uh, and having, patients like that. They love having control. It. Yeah. It's, I think it's recognizing that patients, we talk about patient experts and how patients are the center of their own health. Yeah. And a lot of people, particularly with transplant patients, where they've been through such a long journey, such a long process to get where they are now, they do, from my experiences, they do take control and mm. they like to have control. And being able to access things such as patient view has been life changing for them because it gives them that control. Their health is back in their hands. It's not waiting every six months to see their blood results. They can get them there and then. Yeah. And I think particularly what we, we're talking about doing here as part of the Leicester Kidney Lifestyle team is what other interventions, what other trackers, what other things can we give patients that will help them at some point? And do they need that? Yeah. I suppose that's like, um, insert a generic name for a um, you know, <laughs> diet tracker. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure we're allowed to advertise, but I think we all know the one we're talking yeah. about. I find it really good at breaking down sort yeah. of even like sodium, potassium, the sort of electrolytes that you might be taking in that you might want to keep track of. And that must be great to sort of then pair along, like a patient might mm -hmm. be able to see their results changing if they're trying to mm -hmm. cut out a particular thing from their diet. I, so from a, I'm a kind of, my background is in protein. I did my PhD in protein supplementation. And uh, I'm always, so I'm quite interested in, why protein is so important for kidney patients in terms of their muscle and how that helps with their, their exercise and stuff. Um, and I'm always amazed, and we, you go to these, these talk to dietitians and they're on about estimating protein requirements in patients. And um, we had a, um, an MSc student last year, similar to Kat, um, Ellie, who was funded by Kidney Research UK, and she looked at protein intake in kidney patients and how it associated with their muscle and we can estimate their protein intake very very closely to you know gram per gram per kilogram and we dietitians will tell you well they need this amount of protein per day 
you know, they need 0.8 grams per kilogram per day. But actually, when you speak to a dietitian, well, how do you get a patient to increase their protein? They yeah. say, well, just have some more milk. So actually, the right. advice that they are disseminating to patients is very, very broad. Yeah. But they're actually, what they're actually doing is based off quite, you know, a complex scientific basis. But... I always find it amazing because I was like, "Well, do you get patients to track, mm. you know, their 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 diet on the the tracker or whatever," and they're like, "Oh no, no, we just have some more protein or have right. some more milk and stuff." So actually, the advice is quite generic. I was say, yeah, so you guys spend years and years working in the precise yeah. amount, and this then the is, dietitian's like, yeah. "Have a yogurt, mate." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could I I could not believe it. And I'm like, "Why are we on about? Well, they need this exact amount of protein per day." When actually, it's just like, "Well, you should do it by chicken breasts or yeah. glasses of milk or something." Yeah. Should be the unit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> SR unit for protein. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Did you burn your thesis now then? Because they're clearly not. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's really. Oh, that was really encouraging. Yeah. <laughs> Just thinking back to when you'd said about the patient being the sort of expert of their own mm. care, um, and thinking about the guy who sort of said that he'd never exercised. Do you think we should sort of accept that guy's autonomy? to not exercise is it a case for you just to make sure all the information is there and readily acceptable or do you want to sort of take an active role in in actually really trying to physically encourage patients into into better um lifestyles um sorry is that a real hard it's, question it's a difficult question <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> we, we can just chat for our interest now. I, I, I think it kind of comes back to what cap talked about before about every every single patient you speak to is going to be different mm. and when so at the minute like as i said before we one of the main projects we're working on at the minute is developing a a kind of an intervention it's an online intervention to encourage self-management behavior and it's heavily based as based on education trying to increase education about lifestyle factors and the idea of cats project is to feed into that so in cats project we're hoping then can we identify patients who might be more at risk of being less able to self-manage mm. so are they older are they more comorbid yeah and they're the patients who we need to target with our intervention but i think going forward what we're trying to find is if we're trying to make this intervention suitable for the nhs to be implemented in the nhs and in nephrology across the uk across the world that information unfortunately is going to have to be quite broad yeah so it's really trying to figure out how we, do we get patients to engage with that information that we're giving. Yeah. And I think one thing that we certainly see when we speak to patients is it's about trying for them to try and figure out what's important to them. Like why do yeah. they want to what do they want to improve and why do they want to improve it? And then to try and take that information that will help them reach that goal. Yeah. Um so whether that that you know walking to the the shop which is up a hill they couldn't do that okay in order to do that i need to do xyz i need to improve my my strength i need to improve my fitness and to do those i need to do x y and z Mm. um so i think it's trying to get the patient to relate what they what they what they require to what they need to do to instigate yeah that kind of change yeah Um, but that's so difficult to do because yeah. every patient's so different. Yeah. Can uh. I add something to that? I agree with everything you're saying. I think from my point of view as well, you, you know, this. I think we're talking about individualization here. We're giving out broad information, but it needs to be tailored to a patient. It needs to be individual. Um, and how do that 
it's challenging. I know from a lot of the conversations, again, that I've been having recently, it's this idea of we can put something online that they can read, but it's the consultations and it's the doctors they meet and it's the health clinicians as well that have such an impact because we can give them generalised advice, but they need in those conversations they have for the tailoring to happen. One thing that I know is so important to every patient, that, and I mean every patient I've met, is the relationship they have with their doctors, the familiarity, right. the duration of care. You know, a lot of them have seen the same doctor for 20 odd years. Mm. And that doctor knows them mm. and they have a relationship with them. Mm. So when it comes to challenging them on, okay, what exercise should I recommend? What dietary advice should I give them? They get to tailor it to the patient, but also give them information over a long period of time, yeah. not give them this overload of yeah, information, which yeah. is what you don't want to do when we start. I know it's something like we're with the online intervention, giving it in bite-sized chunks, but you get to do that through your relationship as well yeah. that you build with your doctor. Yeah, I think as well the relationship's key in the sense that you get to know whether this person needs tough love if they if they really respond mm-hmm. to that sort of you know kick up the bum and make it you know you need to get in gear or the sort of look you've done really well you've improved x y and z you can totally do a bit more i guess the long-term relationship is totally key to the way that information is delivered because perhaps yes. more so than saying i'll take this tablet three times a day well that is what it is and you know patients are either going to adhere to that or not i don't really think you could be but with the exercise stuff i think there totally is space for the way it's delivered as well yeah. yeah i mean it comes back to what we were talking about off off air if you like <laughs> about having a the lack of time in those consultations yeah. is is the yeah. biggest problem isn't it yeah. it's, and it's it's trying to okay what's the most immediate problem i need to sort with this patient that's in front of me and then if i've got time i can discuss yeah. other things so somewhere along the line there's got to be what we're trying to do is can we get the doctor which kind of comes back to what Kat was saying it's if the doctor says I think you should do this and the the patient is definitely going to listen to them um, more than if they saw something on a hot you know a GP waiting yeah. in wall or something so what, what we're going to try with this intervention to try and get people is the the GP or the nephrologist almost refers them to the service it's mm-hmm. like here is a, I haven't got time to talk you through this, but here is a, uh, a leaflet about the intervention. I think it would be good for you. Yeah. So at least then it's coming from them and the patient can recognise that this is, okay, this is important for me. Yeah. I should follow this, follow this up. So hopefully that will be a way of trying to get patients to engage with this kind of self-management intervention without the need or the time for these kind of to do this in the consultation where there just isn't the the resources to do yeah. it yeah yeah i mean when when i go to the gp i see that thing on the wall that's like two, um, and two made, things yeah and you're yeah. like it's taking me so long to get this yeah. appointment yeah. i've now yeah and you know yeah. the, i don't have any sort of complex needs touch wood but it's so complicated yeah and i feel like it's not the most important thing on everybody's mind when you go in talking no. about okay so what are you eating when you've got medications to talk about you've got bloods that might have been abnormal there's always something that's more important yeah. when you go see your consultant than yeah. what you're eating and whether or not you're exercising and that's possibly why it doesn't get touched on as much it's almost like there's room for a sort of specialist role mm-hmm. just started last year something called the global renal exercise um group which is kind of a collaboration across the world about um, kind of researchers who are involved in this kind of research. And one of the big things that we're trying to advocate is that how do we get patients access to 
exercise specialists, if you like. They can get access to a dietitian, but there's no real exercise specialist. It's, yeah. not, it's kind of a different from what a physiotherapy yeah. um, department would offer. And they have, in Canada especially, there are amazing um, kind of provisions for renal patients to see these exercise specialists. Um, whereas in Europe, the UK there just isn't that you have this exercise referral scheme which i'm sure most people have heard about which seems to be quite difficult to get onto right um especially for patients with end-stage renal disease because they're classified as high-risk patients right so a lot of um centers and patients have told us this just won't accept them onto it so there is there's definitely kind of scope for some kind of personnel but it's supposed it's money, resources, yeah, yeah, everything, yeah, totally. isn't it? Yeah. Um, so I just thought I'd talk to you a little bit, Kat, about why. So did you see this advertised or were you involved in writing the application yourself? So I kind of came into my third year knowing I wanted to get involved in research in some way. Um, and I, I would say I set a few lists of things that I wanted. I wanted to be patient focused. I wanted to do mixed methods, so look at qualitative and quantitative. And I remember we get given a booklet and, I mean, you guys had set up the project beforehand and had it all laid out for yeah, me. Yeah. Um, and this was the only one that was there that I said, this is a sort of project that is just what I'm looking for, this opportunity to talk to patients, to be at the forefront. I know I'm not a lab girl. <laughs> it's not my sort yeah. of scene. I knew that going in, but I wanted to do research that I think, I know we talked about it earlier, this like making a difference here and now and I could see yeah. the changes. Yeah. Um, so I came in and met Tom and Alice, who's my other supervisor, and that's how I got into the research yeah. as such with kidney. So I wouldn't say it's kidney disease in general, but also this idea of chronic diseases. I've always been really interested in self-management, patients having control of their own care. It's definitely something as, you know, at medical school now, they really want us to understand and take on board how do we help patients help themselves. And the project that they had on offer here is just that. What can yeah. we do for transplant patients to help them help themselves? Yeah, yeah. And how do you think it will sort of help your career going forward as a clinician? I think being able to have these opportunities to have these long discussions with patients, it's definitely brought me back from, you know, we, when we're on placement, I've done one year of clinical placement now, and we have 10 minutes with, with each patient. We're sat with the doctors, short time, quick consultation, in and out. It gives a sense of humanity to everybody you're meeting again. You get to really see people for more than their disease, but their story and their life. And it definitely puts into perspective this idea that patients are more than defined by this condition they have. Yeah. They are more than their kidney disease. They're more than a transplant patient. Um, and I hope to go back into my medical degree. It's a little bit more grounded. Mm. I have a little bit of an understanding now of patients in general. And again, this idea that they're individual and bring it back into perspective. Mm. No, that's and great. then there's the research side as well, which I love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> as like a young person in research, I think this is a great opportunity, and I'd encourage any medical students that can to get involved in, you know, intercalation, get involved in research. You really do see a different side to medicine. Yeah. Uh, spending so much time with doctors, it's a completely different. It's healthcare, but in such a different way. Yeah. And I think it's really important to get involved in research because it underbeds everything that we teach yeah. and everything we learn about and if you haven't got this understanding of the processes and ethics and ethics, getting yeah. all the approvals and making sure you've got the equipment and yeah. the teamwork that goes into research that we all the research that is the foundation of everything we know evidence-based medicine it's what we preach what we practice yeah and I think it's really important going forward as a doctor to have that understanding yeah there's not many jobs where you could do something that m would be sort of 
so beneficial to your career yet so different to your career Mm. I can't think of any other position where you would stop doing what your sort of main job is Mm. to do something allied to it and have to change your skill set almost completely it's it's such a learning curve for you lot and you know but we see we see the change I don't know if you feel the same Tom that you know you might have a either a medic coming in to do a PhD or a medical student coming to integrate and the first week you're literally teaching them how to use a pipette like what yeah biochemists and microbiologists mm-hmm. whoever get in their first week yeah, of their water. first year yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah weighing it yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but to see that change that sort of crazy learning curve that you lot have to go on to then at the end sort of you know um not necessarily being able to discern who the medics and mm-hmm. who the scientists are yeah, yeah. I, I always find that it's um the writing that you can kind of tell when a, when a, a medical student comes in they're obviously going to be bright <laughs> and they're obviously going to know the the clinical stuff but they don't necessarily know the academic side of it the yeah. the writing side of it and some, ripped me to shreds yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tension in the room <laughs> some 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 people come and and that they can write okay and it and it reads and some people just yeah you it just doesn't quite flow but that's just because they haven't had that practice and i think in leicester they mm. they've just changed the interclated years from a bsc to an msc so the msc students get stats teaching they get research methods they get that kind of side to it but previously when we've just had a bsc student it was like okay this is SPSS, this is the buttons yeah. you need to press and, yeah. and things like that. But I think they come a lot more well-equipped. It could take yeah. months to get to grips with just how to use SPSS yeah. properly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've yeah. N- never written an essay before coming here this year. <laughs> really? <laughs> and I remember sitting down on day one and going, Tom, how do I reference? What is referencing? How do I write anything other than a short answer paper question? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're all just drilled to the yeah. exams we have to pass, aren't we? You know? yeah. yeah, we are. Yeah. But I'd like to see it if there was a sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, an integrated programme for scientists to go and do a year in clinic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it would yeah. be so helpful. <laughs> oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what I'd do. If we just stand there and be like, help. <laughs> so you might slowly start to get your own little army of transplant patients that yeah. could sort of advocate on your behalf, be like, yeah, I did X, Y, and Z in the gym that I've never done yeah. before. You know, this is totally legitimate sort mm-hmm. of thing and i feel we've got our regulars as well who come back for all sorts of trials oh, really? people get involved and they just love the outcomes and they love the fact they feel so good that next yeah. time you've got a study and you go down to clinic you see them and they're up here the next day oh, what we, we, we have had patients who we've had in trials who are when they were in non-dialysis stage you know stage four and then they've progressed to dialysis they've taken part in a dialysis trial now they're in our transplant yeah. studies they've come mm-hmm. through the whole thing but i think that is a lot because they they saw the effects of the benefits of the first one. So as soon as we were in clinic and we're like, oh, we've got another trial, they kind of snap your hands off to to, to go for it. Um, but I, and I do think a lot of it is about self-efficacy, about confidence. It's about giving people the confidence that they can exercise, they can be active, mm-hmm. trying to give them the kind of the knowledge so they can go out. Because in the NHS, something like there's no such thing as renal rehab necessarily. There's like cardiac rehab or pulmonary rehab. But we know people who've come through our trials, just kind of arming them with kind of the experience, arming them with a bit of knowledge that they can then take on and do it in their own time. That works for some people. Some people feel so engaged with it. Yeah. 
and just crack on and they come back and see us in another study or we see them in clinic and they're like, I'm still doing this, I'm still doing this. But equally, you see the people who just fall off right? and they stop. <clears throat> and I suppose that's a little bit what Kat's project is trying to yeah. look at is who are these people? Who are the people who aren't quite engaging with it, who aren't kind of looking after their own health? And who are the people, conversely, who are? And what, why? What's the difference? Yeah, what's the yeah. difference? And yeah. Like we, we're collect, collecting stats, if you like, on a paper which can tell you so much. But actually, the best way to do it is sit in our little meeting room <laughs> with a recorder and talk to them for an hour and a half yeah. and actually get to a really in-depth kind of view of what they, they feel. Stuff that a questionnaire would never, ever give you. Yeah. Um, which is why we have qualitative components in all of our studies, you know, before, after... Um, just so we're getting that proper patient experience. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting as well because we've got about 25 of us students who are doing the master's this year and only three of us have a qualitative component to our research. Yeah. Everything's, I mean, and most of them are lab focused. Mm. Uh, but what we find here is it can actually be the most data rich. You can get the most yeah. information. Yeah. It's just not always looked upon as, it's not always highly regarded. People don't always see it as being as valuable as the numbers because you don't have this, you know, this is just called power. You don't have as many people involved because you don't need it because you're getting such rich yeah. information from people. But equally, it's not where, where, like you said before, it's not necessarily where the cure is going to come from. The cure is not going to come from talking to a patient yeah. no. in that room. No, but I think perhaps people do qualitative research research a disservice a perhaps because they don't understand it yeah b yeah because they wouldn't be able to analyze it <laughs> yeah yeah um you know but like you say you can give a questionnaire with multiple choice answers or you can interview them you know i suppose in multiple choice answers you're already putting the words in their mouth yeah, whereas yeah. taking the time to sit down and interview mm. them they're their words specifically yeah i think it speaks to your group the quality of your group that you're getting these patients coming back on more and more yeah. trials you yeah, know you, they must really yeah. feel looked after and sort of importance that's yeah. a really nice sort of badge of honor yeah for you lot i mean sometimes we we're kind of like well we don't want them again and again <laughs> and again <laughs> we yeah. want we want new people i know you know you get this in research all the time that you will get the the more activated the the healthier in inverted um commas if you like patients who take part in our study especially exercise and lifestyle ones Actually, the people who keep coming back to our research studies, sometimes we want, like, new blood, if you yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally, sometimes new blood as well, because otherwise we just have the same people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and like you say, perhaps not quite as far as outliers, but maybe skewed towards a sort of the type of people that probably would have found a way to engage in exercise it's anyway. It's such a challenge. When it comes to looking, I'm beginning to go through my data now and look at what we've got. And most of the patients who do come in are, like you said, the more activated, the more involved, the more engaged in their care. And it, I guess it's a, it's a difficulty in doing research in itself is the people we want to target are the ones who ne don't necessarily want to get involved in what we've got yeah, to offer. Yeah, yeah. So how do you go around that? Yeah. yeah There's no right answer. Well, no, and it's the same with... Um, I did... Um, I tried to record an episode that will be coming out, so it's World Kidney Day on Thursday, mm -hmm. um, basically looking at do people even know what your kidneys are and where they are and what they do. I think only 50% of the British population know that they produce urine. Wow. Um, mm -hmm. And then it's a whole thing of like, well, you, you, can't ram, you can't ram this stuff down people's throat. Like, I don't know how my car works. Yeah. I don't particularly <laughs> want to know how it works. 
there could be mechanics up and down the nation doing all sorts of public outreach to tell me how it works and I just wouldn't be interested I'm just not that sort of person but you know how to look after it yeah you know how to change the oil you know how to refresh the screen wash and stuff and that's kind of what a patient needs to know isn't it to a certain extent yeah yeah or or certainly know where to get that information when they want it yeah Um, but yeah no I think I think what you guys are doing great and actually your unit's hitting a lot of the really big buzzwords for research now like you've got a holistic approach because you're mm-hmm. doing the sort of you know really molecular side of things right away up to patient facing research yeah. and you're attempting to sort of individualize and stratify your work and capture these streams of patients from right from your keeners who you're gonna have to perhaps say <laughs> yeah. yeah don't go for heavyweight champion world yeah. go for commonwealth first <laughs> you know really hold them back yeah. to the other ones where perhaps a bit more like myself you've got to get them off the couch um Cool, I think that's really great. It's really nice to talk to people who are so enthused and engaged by their research, especially this far into their MSc. I honestly, I talk everyone's heads off. I was right. <laughs> at a hockey match on the weekend. I was talking to everyone I could find at the hockey. Have I told you about my research? Like, we're still playing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we just conceded. So. Isn't everyone looking at me like, hey, we're, it's the weekend now. You don't have to keep talking about what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. But I just do find it so interesting. Um, and you can't fight that, can you? Like, I'm loving awesome. what we're doing here, and it does make such a difference. I do always ask people, um, if you get any time off, what do you like to do? So I suppose you like to play hockey Yeah, in time that's off. my weekends normally. Still got all your teeth? <laughs> yeah, just about. <laughs> yeah. I had a knee injury the other week, but it's fine. <laughs> From a stick? Uh, yeah, stick to the knee. Oh. I play defence, it's kind of name of the game. Okay. Okay, I only played hockey at school and like <laughs> I saw this girl get her tooth smacked out like right in front of my face. And oh. I never want and I, I like you know when like time stays out and I saw her tooth like come out, hit the ground. Oh, and no. I went to pick it up thinking she's gonna need that. Yeah. I couldn't I could, there was something weird about picking yeah. a tooth up off the floor and I just sort of stood there and told the teacher yeah. where it was. I couldn't handle it. <laughs> no, you, do, you do get a few injuries. Yeah, well fair play to you. What do you have to, Tom? Uh, um, I yeah, I like exercising, running, um, running ridiculously long distances. They did a uh, ultra marathon last year for Kidney Research UK. How far um, was that? It was fifty three miles. Mm, no, mm. It took ten hours. <laughs> so tentatively training for um, a twenty four hour race in July, Jeez. but. Um, my ankle is playing up at the minute, so I'm not too sure how well, well that's going to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, anything kind of exercisey. Do you ever get that at the GP if you go with your ankle? They're like, "Yeah, you're doing exercise." You're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how do you sort of keep? So I, most the furthest I've run is half marathons, and I did one. It's a long way. So how on earth do you train for races that are that long? And so, what do you think about or listen to? I went through a lot of podcasts because <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can't listen to music for for that many yeah. hours. Um, I didn't listen to any music on the actual race at all because it was in the it was a trail a trail ultra marathon, so it was quite technical and it, you had to concentrate. But training, I, the furthest I went up to was a marathon, hmm. and I did five runs over. 22 miles so that's about three three hours worth of running um but actually once you once you get up to about 15 16 17 miles it's a lot about nutrition right so um making sure that you're replenishing (laughs) (laughs) replenish well it's replenishing salt um and uh, kind of isotonic stuff water and i mean the the oddest thing is during the ultramarathon there was pit stops and as you get close to the end so once you're kind of 30 miles in um you know you're pretty tired but the 
best thing ever is flat coke right. amazing <laughs> i mean i would never drink that normally but also towards the end is orange segments dipped in salt no i shouldn't be advocating this for a <laughs> kidney, kidney diet. Kidney, yeah, <laughs> yeah but uh, orange segment just dipped in salt and it's just a big wedge in your mouth wow. uh, it's the most disgusting thing ever but it really helps everything you, can you need. feel yeah everything you need some flat coke and orange dipped in salt it sounds horrendous but nutritious yeah <laughs> um but yeah a lot of it is about nutrition and pod- a good podcast yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if only i had this one to oh, well, i was gonna to. say yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh that's great that. thank you very much cheers Wow. So I think in CAT, there's going to be a medic with a great, great understanding of the patient and the patient's experience there. And she talked about that a little bit there towards the end. Anyway, as a really neat segue into the next episode, uh, Tom Wilkinson has actually been involved in, I think he's on the steering committee for a project called Kidney Beam. And sort of linking into this idea of helping uh, renal patients uh, take more exercise um, and help them overcome any barriers that they might feel. In the next episode, we're going to be talking about this project, Kidney Beam. It is incredible. I don't want to spoil too much. I want your minds to be as blown as mine was when I was interviewing um, Charlene about, about the Kidney Beam project. But all you need to know for now is that it's, a, it's an online platform that you can access via an app that is enabling renal patients to to exercise in a tailored way and in a specific way. So it's going to give them all that confidence that this is the right exercise for me to be doing. I don't have to worry about pushing it too hard. My transplant can definitely handle it. And all those sorts of considerations are just taken care of. So until then, take care. Um, Wear a mask, follow the guidelines, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but yeah stay safe in this in this new normal as they keep saying uh, and i will see you on the next one take care bye bye <laughs>